Welcome everyone. This is actually our second Sunday here in the new venue. And it's actually really good to see everyone. We are um, trying to get our, our bearings uh, in the new space that God has provided for us. And we are actually really enjoying the season uh, of life uh, with all that uh, that's come. Well, I had a chance to preach last week for the first time in a long time, and that was not easy, but actually I was so thankful uh, to, to be able to do that, and I'm going to be starting up kind of in that regular cycle starting from next week, but I really wanted to have Howard Burgoyne, Reverend Howard Burgoyne, who is our uh, uh, superintendent of the East Coast Conference. Our denomination is the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church. We're covenanters, and he has been so instrumental in not only my journey with covenant, our journey with the covenant. Uh, he's the first covenanter that I spoke with, and He's still my favorite covenanter. <laughs> um, and he has been such an amazing leader. Uh, he's not simply one who is able to lead an organization, but he leads people. He leads hearts uh, just because of who he is. And uh, during this last few months, he has been so hands-on. I'm so thankful. He's been pastoring me. And uh, uh, I'm such a proud person. That's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but he's done it so well. And so I really wanted to have him come and share with us because he actually uh, he's, he speaks and he preaches from God's word and such a uh, such a deep manner, and so I, I was I was sharing with the first service that I'm a little I was being a little selfish. I wanted him to minister to me as well, but I know that he is going to bring God's word in such a powerful way today as well. So, uh, Howard, won't you come up and uh, uh, won't you lead us? Thank you so much. Well, it's a joy for me to be here with you this morning. Uh, you are much in my prayers. I pray for all my congregations. Oops, I pray for all my congregations, and I actually mean that. Um, I spend a lot of time in the car. As a superintendent, I cover a large space. I cover uh, 12 East Coast states from Virginia to Maine. Uh, so I'm on the road a lot, and when I'm on the road, uh, a lot of the time I spend in prayer. That's my prayer closet. And uh, often as I pray, I, I start at one end of the conference, and in my mind, I keep my eyes open as I drive, but as I drive, I pray for that church, and I move my way through. So you guys are right in the middle. Uh, so when I really get up the steam of prayer, I'm praying for my New York churches, and uh, I pray my way across the conference, and uh, pray what I know, pray what I don't know, pray what the Spirit knows, um, and uh, it's a joy to see you in this space and to be with you today. And I bring you greetings from my staff. I have a great staff who uh, work with me across the conference uh, three associate superintendents and Sandy Lee, who manages our office. They all send greetings uh, and have been much in prayer for all of you and for the Chang family in particular in these days. Where are my notes? There they are. Okay. Who needs notes? Just preach. Welcome. Glad you're here. All right. So today, in the life of the, the liturgical church, uh, I would say, in the life of churches that follow the lectionary, which some covenant churches do. But in the church here, this is Transfiguration Sunday. It's, a, it's the last Sunday in the season uh, of Epiphany, which is a, a brief season in the life of the church that attends to the significance of the birth of Christ and who he is in the world. And beginning this week on Wednesday, the season of Lent begins. Ash Wednesday is Wednesday, and then uh, the 40 days between that uh, and Holy Week, and uh, all that we experience together as believers following our Lord to the cross. So I thought today, as I was invited to preach on anything I wanted, which is dangerous, uh, that I would discipline myself and I would come to the text of the day, 
uh, and, and trust that the Spirit of God would, would share with us from the Word. But I want to bookend that, bishop's privilege, if you will, with an earlier text that comes in Epiphany, in the second Sunday of Epiphany, and that was read for you earlier from John chapter 1. So we're going to begin in John 1, then we're going to go to Mark chapter 2. We're going to hold these together, and I think they frame powerfully and, and uh, prophetically our invitation and our challenge as people who desire to and are called to follow Jesus Christ. My wife and I are in the empty nest season of our life. Either that on or lower. I can get taller if you want. Is that good? Okay. Is that good for you? Is that helpful? Okay. My wife and I are in the empty nest season of life. Our youngest has last September going off to college, and so our oldest is married and uh, several years out of the house, our youngest is in college. And uh, that's brought some new rhythms and opportunities for us in our life together. One of them we've taken on is that uh, each week we, we watch uh, a TV series, because we're so out of touch with real TV now that we're empty nest parents, but we decided that we would watch a series uh, this fall, at least one or two a week, of the PBS series Father Brown Mysteries. I know we're old people, but Bear with us. <laughs> Father Brown is a character created by G.K. Chesterton, who is a British author, uh, uh, thinker, philosopher, troublemaker uh, from uh, late 1900s, early 20th centuries, uh, quite a profound thinker. And one of the things he created was a, a whole series, and you can buy the book, Father Brown Mysteries, kind of like Sherlock Holmes. But Chesterton, uh, being a, a devout Roman Catholic, embeds in the character the chief character, Father Brown, he's a priest. He's a priest in Kemblford, which is a small country parish uh, outside of London, and apparently he has the liberty to solve murder mysteries every week as a part of his parish duties. So kind of like a Sherlock Holmes with a collar on, all right? And I had, I had read a, a number of these years ago, and I have a copy of the whole book, but my wife and I are watching them. And what strikes me as I read the stories and observe the character of Father Brown, is here's the genius of what G.K. Chesterton embeds in Father Brown. Every week, Father Brown, in his parish duties, stumbles upon a murder mystery, and he ends up solving it uh, to the frustration of the local uh, police, uh, to, the, to the confusion of all the tiered society. He navigates through all the contours of direction, misdirection, of trauma, tragedy, and difficulty, and he solves the murder. How does he do it? Well, what Chesterton puts into the character of Father Brown is a perspective, a way of seeing in the world. In fact, when asked at one point how, how Brown actually solves this, he says, well, it's actually fairly simple. He says, what I do in each of these situations is I seek to enter into the reality of what the killer must be experiencing in their brokenness, in their humanity. I actually work it out from the inside out. And once I fully place myself in the experience of the murderer, I know who did it. What I'm most moved about in my observation of that, and you may want to watch some of these to see, is that Father Brown works like a detective. He works with deductive reasoning he pays attention to everything that happens. They, of course, they give you that in the camera and the story, all the little pieces. But what Father Brown does is that when he finally unmasks the killer, he's not a prosecutor. 
He's a priest. Father Brown's focus is on the gospel and not on the law. Focused on redemption, not on prosecution. Focused on bringing people into the light, not seeing them go into prison. For Father Brown, his detective work is tied to his pastoral work, and that is this. He's cultivated a way of seeing. A way of seeing every person, a way of seeing the connectedness of developing an intuition that comes from the gospel and the power of God's mercy. In the first text that was read this morning from John chapter 1, that's the entire schematic of John 1, the second half, where Jesus goes out introducing himself to people two by two and calling them to come and follow him, and in the center of that, calling them to come and to see. Discipleship is a way of seeing in the world. Today, I want to challenge you, how do you see the world around you? All of us, growing up in whatever household we grew up in, whatever culture we grew up in, whatever strata of the community we are a part of, we, we cultivate a way of seeing that comes from the world around us. We are steeped in it from our earliest days. And most of us develop a way of seeing that the world shapes us into, that pegs us into a corner, and we develop a certain hardness, a certain jadedness, a jiltedness that comes from where we are in the pecking order of economy, from where we are in our ethnicity and heritage, and how that is seen and experienced in a broad world. And the older we get, literally, the harder comes our vision and our perspective, and we predetermine outcomes by what we're pretty convinced is the truth. Jesus, in calling us to discipleship, seeks to remove the hardness through which we see the world. There's a deconstruction that has to happen so that recreation can occur. We are learning to see with Jesus. And the phrase that I like that uh, comes to describe that is learning to see not with hard eyes, but with soft eyes. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is calling you to follow him with soft eyes. Soft eyes is a term that's used in detective work and artwork and in other fields, about a cultivated way of observing without drawing premature conclusions. About opening your eyes and being aware of who is present, of what is present, of the deep connectedness, the intuitive realities that are a part of what is all around us. If you are to be a detective, you'll have to develop Soft eyes. Anyone could be the killer. Anyone could be lying to you. Anything could be a clue. You look for the deeper connectedness, soft eyes. But not just in detective work. If you are in medicine, you must practice the craft and art of medicine with soft eyes. You must come to your patients and your clients with an openness and a sensitivity that does not predetermine that you know everything about what their symptoms might point to. 
You need to be open to the story that's behind the story that knits it together, that makes it a part of a whole system. Not just a body, but a person, and not just a person, but a family, and not just a family, but a person and a community. Soft eyes. We're learning to see. Or if you're in the field of law, you may think, I've seen a million of those, and you predetermine them. But if you're a judge, you have to cultivate soft eyes. You understand the prosecutor will come with hard eyes from one point and the defense will come with another perspective, but a a very wise judge centered will help the court observe all things and with soft eyes help to bring justice to bear. Pastors, pastors have to have soft eyes. Pastors and priests and Rabbis, it is said, are the most lied-to people in the community. People come wanting certain things to be true and telling us certain aspects of their story. And we learn through long life experience that nobody's capable or willing to tell you the whole story. So we bring soft eyes to bear. Discipleship calls us to walk closely with Jesus and to have soft eyes. In John chapter 1, the invitation that comes in this text is, come and see. Jesus said to Philip, Nathaniel, come and see. Nathaniel, who hears about Jesus coming from Nazareth, and he has hard eyes. Nazareth? Oh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I know we probably don't have any neutral, any, any prejudice about new, uh, Nazareth in our uh, world, but uh, we all have places, parts of town, adjoining cities and communities, even places you may have come from, that from somebody else's point of view is no placeville. I mean, it's Loserville. It's less than. Well, Nazareth in Israel was one of those less fortunate, less focused didn't have much of a nightlife kind of place. It was a small, to-be-ignored community. And that's where Jesus grew up, out of the way, Nazareth. I might say here, Hoboken. Hoboken. Can anything good come out of Hoboken? I hope none of you are from Hoboken. Well, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching He said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says, how do you know me? Nathanael asked, and Jesus said, actually, I I saw you, which is not an incidental way of seeing. I, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. That was enough for skeptical Nathaniel to be converted in that moment. For he said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. But I tell you, you will see greater things than that. And then he added, and this is the first of these in John's gospel, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, or verily, verily, I say to you, depending on your translation, but double emphasis, hear ye, hear ye, you will see heaven open 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus calls women and men into relationship with him. And at the center of that discipleship is a gift and a discipline of cultivating a new way of seeing one another. Seeing, we're told, is believing. But Jesus comes to us and says, you will see greater things than my prophetic foresight of where you were before I called you. In fact, Jesus says, you're going to see, if you pay attention to me, if you stay close to me, you're going to see something greater than emerged from this text that Jesus references from Genesis 28. Why, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you have a study Bible, you might find a notation that says Jesus is referencing an Old Testament story from Genesis 28. He's alluding to that. And Nathaniel, as a good student from Shabbat, would have understood and caught that allusion that Jesus was referencing a text that came from the book of Genesis. And it comes from the story of Jacob, who fled from his father and his brother for his very life and was running away uh, and uh, was sent to go back to his home country to let his brother cool off for a while. Genesis 28 we're told that Jacob, at the end of his first day running away from father and brother, comes to the edge of the nation of Israel, comes to the borderland as the sun is setting, exhausted, frustrated, and worn out. Jacob arrives at a certain place. He stops there for the night. The sun has set, both literally and proverbially. Darkness has come to Jacob's life. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head, and he laid down to sleep. How'd you like that for a pillow at Motel 6? And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, taller than Jack's beanstalk, brothers and sisters. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on that ladder. And there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord your God, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Oy vey, it's not quite in the text there, Oy vey, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Jesus takes that text and applies it to Nathan's experience there in that initial encounter. Nathaniel you will see greater things than prophetic insight into where you come from and what's true in your life. Why, Nathaniel, if you follow me, if you stay close to me, what you're going to experience is something far greater than Jacob had a promise of, this mysterious connection between earth and heaven, this ladder that reached from earth to heaven, 
this portal from which the angels of God came down with their holy orders and back with their divine reports. No, actually, Nathaniel, on me, Jesus says, I'm that ladder. I'm that bridge. I'm that portal. You will see, if you stay close to me, a continuous array of epiphanies, of heaven opening, and the angelic movements of God centering in my person. That's the promise, and that's the premise that Jesus offers to Nathaniel. And it's placed at the very beginning of John's gospel to awaken our sensitivity about, well, what are we going to see in this gospel of John if we move on from chapter 1 to the chapters that follow? John wants us to understand as we're introduced to the stories of Jesus in all of John's gospel, discipleship, following Jesus, hanging out with him, begins by cultivating a new way of seeing in the world. The gospel celebrates that Jesus came to give sight to the blind. And a number of his miracles, in fact, were that miraculous demonstrations of restoring physical sight to those who were born blind or became blind through disease. Those were marvelous miracles that restored people to life and to community and to dignity. But we understand that those miracles, marvelous as they were, only pointed to a much deeper work, a work that is universal, and that is to open our eyes, not just our physical eyes, but our spiritual eyes, the eyes of the heart, as the scriptures speak of, that lens through which we look at people and peg them into spaces so that we can control them or eliminate them, or manipulate them, and distance ourselves from them. Hard eyes. Jesus came to remove those hard veils from our eyes so that we could see as he sees and walk as he walks. So in the early church, they took this very seriously. The early believers, the disciples, as they walked with Jesus, learned from situation to situation, encounter to encounter, that they were blind. And only as they walked closely with Jesus did they begin to see people for who they could be and who they would be from Jesus' point of view. So the apostles in the New Testament cultivate this same discipline. And it enabled them to be a part of a revolution in their world. What kind of perspective do you need in the world to make it possible for church to be an even gathering place of men and women? Not men over the women and not women over the men, but men and women as equals created in the image and likeness of God, co-heirs with Christ in the body. A particular perspective that comes from Jesus. You didn't get that from Hebrew society. You didn't get that from Greco-Roman society. The equality of women comes from seeing people through the lens of Jesus. Before the church, the world was segmented entirely into ethnicities and races, and within them into guilds and tribes and other segments. What kind of perspective makes it possible to gather people in community in a Christian church where race is not the essential term? 
where people can come regardless of skin color and ethnicity and community story. You're all welcome. You didn't get that from a nationalism. You got that from Jesus, who creates all people in the image and likeness of God. What kind of a community is it possible for the wealthy to treat the poor with dignity and for the poor to experience hospitality and equality among the well-to-do? You don't get that from Ivy League education. You don't get that from the narrative of the business world. You get that from Jesus, who comes to treat the poor and the dispossessed, the marginalized, the elderly, the castaways with equality, with soft eyes, seeing the image and the likeness and the dignity of God in every person. Disciples, then, have learned to see through Jesus' eyes And in learning to see through Jesus' eyes, we get to be a community of reconciliation, welcoming all persons under the umbrella and the banner of the gospel and the reconciling power of Jesus Christ. Paul, in his second letter to the Philippians, will say this to that diverse community. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. That is, we've taken our sight from the master. And we've stopped seeing people as the world sees them, but now we see them as Jesus sees them, as beloved and precious in his sight. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious how? In his sight. Yes, Jesus loves the little children of the world. And he doesn't stop loving them when they grow up into adults. Jesus loves all the people of the world. We cultivate a sight together. To see Jesus is to learn to see as Jesus sees. So the journey of discipleship is moving from uh, having faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord onto the maturity of developing the faith of Jesus. His perspective on the Father, his perspective on the world, his perspective on the kingdom of God and its coming. That's our journey. If you've got faith in Jesus, wonderful. Praise God for that. Continue to grow in that. But maturity moves on from just the faith in Jesus to cultivating the faith of the master. We believe as he believes, for we are sent as he was sent into the world. Secondly, and let's move to the second text that was read, Mark chapter 9. Discipleship takes its shape by another great epiphany. All the encounters that the disciples of Jesus have experienced as they've been following him, his preaching, his teaching, his healing, his deliverance, all his travels all around Judea and Galilee, out and about even to Samaria and then up north, they've been learning the content of Jesus' ministry, of what he teaches and who he ministers to. And they're on this journey of coming to this conviction that God is really present in this person of Jesus, and they're learning to walk closely with him. And then the lid blows off in Mark chapter 9. On this day, just the inner core of the disciples, the officer core, uh, Peter, James, and John are led by Jesus up a high mountain for a retreat. And while there, heaven clashes 
on the mountaintop. And in an instant, Jesus is transfigured, transformed in front of them. Again, it's something they see. It's not a hallucinogenic experience where they all ate the same mushrooms and had the same bizarre experience. No, this, this bends all of our language about historicity and mystery. What happened? Their eyes were opened to something. You see, we all know that with our physical eyes and intuition, we live within a spectrum. We understand that there's light coming from these lovely fluorescent lamps here, uh, and that light is on a spectrum. And these eyes have access to only a portion of light. There's spectrum on the low end and there's spectrum on the high end that these eyes are difficult or impossible to have attunement to. But with other instruments, you can observe a broader range of light. We understand that to be true. The same thing is true for sound. Uh, at my age, there's a certain spectrum of sound I no longer have access to. And my attempt to call it up is to say, what? 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 I can't hear it. It's just not there. But I aware, I'm aware, and my dog can attest, there's a spectrum of sound that is real and present, but one has to be created for it. So what happens in the transfiguration? How do we receive that as sight and insight? And that is that spiritually, there's something profoundly true in the world and profoundly true in the person of Jesus that is hidden from us. There's a veil over these eyes, both physical and spiritual, that's normal. But God, at any time he wishes, can remove that veil, can expand our capacity to see what is always present and to enter into it and to be changed. On that mountaintop, I think the father decided to have a little fun with the son and with the disciples there at that moment, all for a purpose. But the son, who has always been, as Colossians tells us, the exact representation of God's nature, in him the fullness of God dwells bodily, it's good New Testament teaching. Uh, from the beginning, the word was made flesh and dwelled among us, full of grace and truth. Jesus lived all of his earthly life, largely cloaked and hidden, even among his own people. He had no form or comeliness that we should be attracted to him, Isaiah says. Nothing desirable. He wasn't a ruggedly handsome man that every woman swooned for him, that every man said, gee, I wish. He was just an average Joe, or an average Joshua would have been the best way to say it there. Yes. In fact, at some points, people were repulsed by Jesus because he was a common man, or so it appeared. But those who came to know Jesus, as John chapter 1 tells us, and here in this Mark text, there are moments where the reality of who Jesus is and what's true about him breaks out. And in many places, Jesus says afterwards, shh, don't tell anybody. Let them come to this for themselves. On that mountain, who Jesus is was revealed momentarily for Peter, for James, and John. The brilliance of his being, the glory of his being, the Son of God as Son of Man, the veil was pulled back momentarily, and it was beautiful. A blaze of brightness and beauty gathered together more amazing than artists can render, though artists try. 
And I've looked at many artists' rendering of the transfiguration, and I appreciate their effort, but it's impossible. It's impossible to describe in art and in language the significance of the glory that is present in the person of Jesus. For all the fullness of God dwells bodily in him. And yet Jesus mercifully cloaks that most all the time until his father said, whoop, oh, gotcha, okay, yeah. So that we would not be overwhelmed, but so that we can learn to walk as he walks in the world. You see, Jesus came to lead us into faith, to give us sight, and to make it possible for us to walk with him as disciples in the world, not always overwhelmed by the magnificence of his being. He knows our frame. He understands the limitations that we have. Jesus is burdened for his disciples to learn to walk closely with him. But for the purposes of faith and for this pivotal moment in his journey, the revelation of who Jesus is has been growing in the experience of the disciples as they've walked closely with him. And now in this moment on the mountaintop, the veil of their own limitations is pulled back and they see Jesus shining in divine glory more brilliant than the sun, radiating from his being and his clothing, all is aglow with the glory of God. And alongside of him, Mark says, showed up Moses and Elijah, the giver of the law and the leader of the prophets, who show up to have counsel with Jesus, to bear witness to him, to be a part of the conversation that Jesus is having about where he's going which is down the mountain, into the valley, to the city of Jerusalem, and to the cross of Calvary. And all the doublespeak and confusion of the disciples doesn't last for long until all of a sudden the cloud covers the mountaintop, the cloud being the sign of God's manifest presence uh, in the Old Testament, the, the Shekinah cloud that would come, and then this voice that shatters and says, this is my Son, my beloved, listen to him. Listen to him. We are called to have new eyes. We are called to walk closely with the master. And we are called to listen to him. In the end of the vision, Moses and Elijah have returned to wherever they came from. The cloud has moved away. The voice is gone. And that is the word that rings in the ears of the disciples. Listen to him. And from that moment, Jesus begins with increasing conviction, but the disciples still with confusion to speak about the necessity of where he's going, and that is to be crucified and raised. And we don't get it. What's this talk about crucifixion? What's this talk about dying? What's this talk about resurrection? We, we don't get it. We don't see. We don't hear. We don't understand. The epiphanies need to continue for the disciples of Jesus to come. Brothers and sisters, we're about to enter into the season of rigor for the church. Forty days of Lent. A time in which we step back and we double down on the earnestness of our attention to Jesus. 
May it be in these 40 days that come beginning Wednesday, you pay fresh attention again to seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus. That you take up again the rhythms and the privilege, the burdens and the responsibilities of walking closely with this Jesus who calls us to follow him. Of letting the weight of that cross that we carry, our cross, the one he calls us to carry, be upon your shoulder. Let it mark the way you walk with Jesus in the world toward his passion. And may you make it your aim in these days to double down again on the earnestness of listening to what Jesus has to say. Of letting the gospels and the teaching of Jesus, the content of his brilliance and his beauty, begin to shape afresh your life in every dimension and all that it is. At the center, discipleship is an invitation to relationship. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and what? Learn from me. Discipleship is not a book that we read, but a master we welcome, one who we walk closely with in life. So the gift that God gives us is not heavy compared to the heaviness of the world, but it is comparatively light and full of glory.